Pastor Dave Swavely, in his book called Who Are You to Judge, a book I would recommend you purchase and read and make a great supplement to this series, this mini-series that we're doing here from Romans 14. He writes, in many years of pastoral counseling, I have repeatedly found that the difficulties people face in their marriages, families, churches, and jobs can be traced back to wrongful judgments that have been made in their minds concerning others. And then he says, judging is sin. He also writes, the sin of judging is this, negatively evaluating someone's conduct or spiritual state on the basis of unbiblical standards or suspected motives. And then he adds this, if we cannot even judge ourselves, he's reflecting on 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul is saying things like, I'm not even aware of anything against myself in my conscience, but that doesn't excuse me. The one who examines me has to be the Lord. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm not even sure I can evaluate my own self all that well. So he's picking up on that statement. If we cannot even judge ourselves accurately, then we ought to be extremely careful about how we judge others. Since you cannot know with certainty what is in your own heart, how could you possibly think that you can discern what is in the heart of another? I know your motives. I know exactly what you're doing. No, actually you don't. Maybe once in a while a mommy knows exactly what a kid is thinking. But for a a large part of the time when we think we understand all of the dynamics going on in someone else's heart, the answer is not really. Be very careful with that. How important it is to heed some of the wisdom of the Proverbs we've been learning about, such as Proverbs 18, read this last week, verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Boy, and for people like me that interrupt too much, I need to keep thinking about that. Listen to what others are saying, and before you give them an answer, make sure you've properly understood them. How do you know if you've understood someone else? Here's a clue. If you can repeat back to somebody what they were trying to communicate to you and they go, that's it, then you know that you've heard them properly. It's a good little practice that I've tried to use. Now, last time, in part one of our series, we laid the foundation about wrongful judging. We considered that judging can divide a church. It can divide friendships. It can divide marriages. It can do a lot of dividing, right? And why is that? Because it focuses on the condemnation side rather than on the acceptance side. It's focusing on the gotcha, I gotcha, rather than on I'm there to support you, you see. We heard also of God's opposite command to us. Rather than judging, what's the opposite command to us? If you're here, hopefully you remember it is we need to accept one another. You know, there's a lot of one another commands in the Bible. That might be one that you haven't thought about as much, but it's very important. And it's the idea that believers, true believers, accept one another. Buried and oft forgotten in Romans 14, back of this book, is that command, accept one another. It comes to the fore here in Romans 14. When we Christians disagree, and we will, about applying our faith to life, and there's a lot of tricky things in life, we're not all going to agree about it, what do we do with it? The answer is, in love, we accept one another, try to understand one another. Now, these are in all of the areas of the Christian life that are not hard and fast commanded by God. 
your style of parenting or what you're going to do in parenting in a certain situation or schooling choices or how you do recreation or how you dress or eating or voting or celebrating holidays. Many, many things in the way we live our life fall into this category. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God's Word has nothing to say about all these areas. Of course it does. God has lots of wisdom to tell us about our motives in dressing, why do we dress the way we do, our, uh, why are we pursuing this kind of an education, what are we doing with our money. God's Word has a lot of wisdom to inform all of these areas. We're not telling you to ignore that wisdom. We're just saying since God doesn't make hard and fast rules, then neither should God's people in those areas. God has purposely left for us. Listen, God has purposefully left for us a range of freedom We are allowed as mature sons and daughters of uh, his brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ and sons and daughters of God, mature outlook like God has, taking the mind of Christ. We've been given freedom so that we can exercise that freedom in the way that we conduct our stewardship in our lives towards God. He wants us to have that freedom. He's going to evaluate the effectiveness and the wisdom of our lives based upon the fact that we did have choices in those areas. Now, historically, and if you like theology, theologically, the church has called these areas of lesser importance where Christians disagree the adiaphora, adiaphora, just areas of indifference, things that are neither commanded in the Bible nor forbidden in the Bible. They're not right or wrong in and of themselves. It all depends on why you're doing what you're doing, see? Disagreement in these areas of adiaphora are never to be labeled sin. Why not? Because God does not label it sin. Sooner or later, you, as a Christian, are going to disagree with somebody else. I'm certain it's already happened to you. It's happened to me many, many times, even at a church where we try to teach the word, the word, the word, and everyone's hearing the same thing. Of course we're going to disagree. Some of those disagreements help us to learn from one another. That's good. How do I live pleasing the Lord in this situation? Now we're in the midst of a pandemic. How are we supposed to handle that? None of us have any experience with this. (laughs) We're all kind of figuring this out as we go along. Politically charged years. Everybody's supposed to agree with everything. We don't even know if some of the information that's coming to us is accurate enough sometimes, right? So, of course, you've got to calm down, think things carefully through, not jump and judge and all of that, but be very, very careful. All right. Now, if all of that is an introduction, let's look at Romans 14, verses 1 through 13. And um, some of what we're teaching comes from later in Romans 14 and from chapter 15. I'm just focusing on these 13 verses for now. Let me read it again. Romans 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. 
For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then... Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. And then he goes on, not to put a stumbling block in a brother's way. All right? So what, in a nutshell, is Paul teaching in this section? That we should let believers have their own convictions, their own conscience in many areas of life, and not judge them, but with love, give each servant of Christ the acceptance that they deserve and room to grow and change and learn. As far as an outline goes here, if you like taking notes, I know some of you do, and I applaud that. That's very good. Take some notes. I would say this. There's one overarching command here. It's the command, accept one another. The opposite of it is, don't judge one another. That's the overarching command. That's the main point. We talked about that last time. And then today we consider sort of the reasons why. Why should we accept one another? Why should we not judge one another? There's three reasons. I doubt we'll get to all three today, but we're going to get started with it. All right? So the reasons why we should keep this commandment to accept one another. Reason number one, it's in verses two and three. Focus on verses two and three. I'll read it again. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And here's the reason. For God has accepted him. That's the first reason. Why are we to accept one another in these areas? Answer number one, because God has accepted that person. You have to accept them. I have to accept them because God has already accepted them. God accepts them. The issue's over. Now we know what we're supposed to do. We do what God does. It's really end of discussion. If I didn't understand any of the other reasons, that would be it. It's like, okay, God, I don't get this. I don't know why, but you accept them. I'll accept them. Okay. And that's where it would end. But fortunately, we were given more reasons, so we're going to have a little longer message here. Here we go. In verses 2 through 3, Paul gives us specific understanding of what separated the weak brother and the strong brother. Remember, these are both believers, both saved people. The weak are Christians who thought that God was pleased if believers ate vegetables only rather than meat. Now, the word only is not in there, but it has to be supplied in order to get Paul's meaning here. Some of the pagan converts, for example, ate only vegetables. Why? Because they did not want to take the chance that they would end up eating meat that was sacrificed to false gods, to idols. If you invited a fellow like this over to your house one day for dinner, and you're the host, right? And you put out the food, and you'd cook the meat, and the meat is a special part of the meal, and you put it all out, and the guy's kind of holding back, and he doesn't want to eat it. And you're like, hey, what's wrong with you? You know, like the Italians would talk. What is wrong with you? You don't like my meat. I can't eat that. Why not? Because the meat may have come from the temples. So, so we're not supposed to participate in the food of the devils. And so the conversation might kind of go like that. It was a hard 
area of unity for the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. They had their areas of conflict. This was a big one. The Jew also might point out that there might be some ceremonially unclean meat mixed in there, and he couldn't have that. And so they would refrain from eating. Furthermore, the weak were grieved if other believers ate the food. They would see the the strong brothers start to eat, and then they were grieved. Look at verse 15. It actually says that eating the meat might actually hurt the weak, kind of hurt their, their faith. Wait a minute. Why is he doing that? It might cause him to stumble and do something that his conscience was not ready and prepared to do. In fact, glance down at verse 21. It adds that eating would cause them to stumble, hurt, stumble. We don't want to do that to a brother. That's not loving. Now, the word weak, astheneo, can mean, depending on the context, either a weakness or a bodily sickness. Here, it refers to some form of spiritual weakness, some deficiency in their faith. Please notice in verse 2, only the strong are described as exercising faith in the decision that they're making. It says one man has faith that he may or can eat all things. You see, it's his faith of the strong that enabled them to go ahead and eat the meat. Now, though the weak are believers, Paul does not use the word faith when referring to their decision to abstain because the attitude that led them to refrain was not an exercise of faith in God's revealed New Testament message. Eating vegetables only during the Christian era, that is not for the nation of Israel during our New Testament era, eating vegetables only was not God's teaching. And so restricting oneself unnecessarily revealed a weakness in faith. Now, we all know there are people today that restrict themselves from eating either all meats or certain kinds of meats, but guys, that is not what we're talking about in this context. Those are dietary reasons. People don't want to eat meat because of this or that. Trust me, I've done a lot of reading about cancer and causes of cancer, and you don't want to eat this, and you want to eat this, and there are all kinds of theories out there. If people have a dietary reason for not eating meat, that's not what we're talking about here. This was a religious reason. They thought that God did not want them eating the meat, that it was forbidden by the Lord himself for those other reasons we already gave. This here is religious reasoning, okay? They were weak, not because they doubted their salvation, they knew Christ, but because they did not believe they were allowed to engage in certain activities that God had now said, you're free to do that. It's acceptable. They believed incorrectly, not about the gospel, they got the gospel right, but about living the Christian life, you see. The weak failed to grasp the implications of their new faith. Now that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what are you allowed to do? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, now you're allowed to do that. They failed to grasp that. And therefore, listen to this, weak faith and a weak understanding of the implications of the gospel go hand in hand. They believed the right gospel, they didn't get the implications of it, and those go hand in hand. To help you perceive the biblical understanding of what is meant in Paul's writings by the weak here, keep your finger in Romans 14 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's kind of a parallel passage, it's a little bit different, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you could see it wasn't just the church in Rome that was dealing with this, the church in Corinth was as well. This was a big issue for the early church, and it's in two of Paul's major epistles, so think about this. 
1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 8. And here you see the lack of understanding that they had. Verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things, sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7, here it is. However, not all men have this, what? Knowledge. Not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. You see that? They did not realize that there are no real gods out there. There's only one God. I mean, Isaiah spends so much time talking about that God's up in the heavens and he looks around and he says, you know, I'm the only God that's up here that I'm aware of. I am the one. There's nobody but me. But what about these other gods? Those are, those are demons, really, that are masquerading as supernatural uh, beings and all of that, and they're not actual real gods. They didn't create anything. They're not gods. They're idols. They're, they're vain things, right? So Paul points out that those who don't grasp this correct theology have a weak conscience, an oversensitive conscience. Listen to this because some of you fall into this category. An oversensitive conscience or a conscience that's been misled by weaker kind of teachings is not a strong conscience and does not prepare you to exercise stronger faith. By the way, to dig into this issue just a little bit more, because I know some of you come from backgrounds where you have been involved in pagan worship, uh, whether that was out of Buddhism or Hinduism or something like that, other forms as well. When you move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 14 through 22, you'll see that Paul will point out there that though there are no idols, there are indeed demons. Demons are real. And that is why we should not go into the temples to participate in the worship during the temple worship services of the pagans because that provokes, it says there, the Lord to jealousy because the demons are drawing worship to themselves through those worship services. Listen. Worship services celebrating false religions, false gods, or even false forms of Christianity, even today, are off limits for believers because they are participation in the worship of demons. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I don't want you to have anything to do with the worship of demons. In fact, he says, you can't take the cup of the Lord, that is the communion cup, and the cup of demons and do that together. You can't. You'll provoke God to jealousy. So that's something that is off limits for us because demons are real. But after the religious service was over, when the meat was sold out in the marketplace for common consumption from anybody, was it okay to buy it, take it home, and eat it? And the answer is yes. Why? Because that's food that God created if there's only going God that's in existence. In fact, if you want more study on this, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. It confirms this for us. It says, no food is to be rejected but receive with what? Thanksgiving. Why do you think we bend over a meal 
right? And we give thanks for our meal. You know why we do it? It kind of comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. We give thanks for our meal because we're receiving this. We know it's God that gave that to us. It's all created by God. It's good. Do you remember Mark chapter 7 and verse 19 where it says Jesus declared all foods clean? Now, how can he get away with that? Because Jesus is Lord over all things, right? And the law of Moses said, no, it's unclean. And Jesus steps forward and says, on my own authority, as Messiah of Israel, I'm now declaring all foods clean. Peter learns that lesson in Acts chapter 10. We were going through that a few months ago. What God has cleansed, the heavenly voice said to Peter, no longer consider unclean. That, my friends, is New Testament teaching. Now, come back to Romans 14. Come on back to Romans 14. Focus on verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Though Paul opened with a command for the strong, at this point he knows that both sides need rebuking, and he gives each group a slightly different instruction. The strong are told not to despise or regard with contempt the weak. Why did they get that instruction? Because the strong might have thought of themselves as superior. I know something you don't. Oh, I see that my faith is a little more advanced than yours. And so they needed that. Re- don't, don't look down on your brother. You know, you, you think that insight is yours? You think you created that for yourself? No, God gave that to you. And then the weak are given a similar, but not an exactly same command. They're told, don't judge the strong. Similar. That verb was appropriate because if the weak saw the strong doing something, they were convinced, ah, 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 you're not allowed to do that. The Lord's going to be upset with you. They may have considered that the strong were being reckless, were being irresponsible, and they're told, no, don't judge your strong brother. Don't do that. Verse 3 provides the reason that both sides must, must accept one another. Look at it again. Verse 3, it's very important. For God has accepted him. There it is. That is precious truth, beloved. God has accepted him. How well we would do to meditate on those words concerning all of our Christian brethren who are genuinely saved but hold different practices from us. How helpful That would be looking at that brother. You know, I wouldn't do things that way, but God has accepted him. Really? God's accepted him? God has accepted him. So, okay, Lord, that means that I also don't accept him from a distance, but I warmly, remember what the commandment, warmly receive unto myself as a full-fledged brother in Christ. What precious words, what far-reaching application this had. I hope we get time in this series to to take some of the issues that we struggle with and begin to bring them through this grid so we can begin to practice how we're supposed to use this. Right now, I don't want to get into it because if I get into this issue or that issue, I'll get distracted. I want all this teaching to sink in first, and then we'll we'll come back to some of the issues we struggle with and we disagree with, and we'll kind of run them through the teaching of Romans 14 and, and other places and learn to train our minds to judge correctly. But right now, just remember this. God has accepted the meat eater, and God has also accepted the non-meat eater. Why? Because even if his conviction is unnecessary, he's refraining from eating it because he loves the Lord. 
and God knows his heart. Man, the applications here are immense, as I said. Think about how you respond to other believers when you see them do something or not do something that you disagree with. Do you have trouble with those? They've restricted themselves too much. You look at that and you're like, ah. God tells you, even if you are right, do not despise your brother. I have, I have, as a pastor with my family, with all kinds of different families that have come to Hope Bible Church through the years, we have had as a family to teach our children how to adjust and adapt to Christians with very wide differences of opinion. There have been numerous times my children have had questions about, but this family allows such and such. This family doesn't allow such and such. <laughs> What's really the truth? And I had to say, look, here's how I understand it. Here's why we do what we do. But when we're over in their home, right, when we're around them, we're going to do our best to what? To love them, accept them, and not cause problems with them because they're our brothers in Christ and we're going to treat them as well as we can. When we're too rigid and inflexible on smaller things, we actually hurt unity and hurt our ability to fellowship with other believers. Do you remember when you were a lesser taught believer and you thought some things were absolutely wrong and then over time you realized, oh, okay, it depends on whether or not I do it with this attitude or that attitude, whether it's this situation or that situation. Do you remember when people were patient with you when you were kind of a numbskull, you know, and you were like, you thought all this stuff was wrong or you thought all of this was, was, was okay and some of that stuff was dangerous and people were just, they were just patient with you. Well, that's what we need in the body of Christ as well. Well, let me ask you the opposite question. Do you have trouble with those who do certain things that the Bible does not specifically prohibit? And may, even though you, you don't think so right now, just may allow that practice. You may think that clapping hands during the worship songs is a, not appropriate. Maybe for you it just doesn't do it. You think it takes away from the worship. Or if you start adding a little bit of rhythm in there with the drums and all that, that that's not appropriate to uh, praise of God. Maybe you came from that kind of a background. You, in, in fact, you have a little bit of a bad feeling about it. But you ask yourself, are believers commanded to refrain from rhythm during praise? And you really can't find that command in Scripture. Then you have to hold what you practice as a preference, not as a conviction. And you have to do more than that. You have to accept your brother as he worships with a little bit of rhythm. Maybe you don't think anyone should ever go to a public beach. I mean, you've watched how bad uh, bathing suits have become through the decades, and you see the culture slipping into worse and worse decadence, and I would not argue with you on that. But your conviction is you just never go to a public beach when there are other people that's too crowded, way too much nudity, and you just, it's a sin to go to the beach. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scripture says it's sin to lust in your heart. You say, well, I couldn't go there without lusting. Then hold that as a rule for yourself, as a guideline to help yourself, and maybe for some others that you're trying to teach and they're weak in that area and you're trying to counsel them and help them. But to make that the rule where God has not made that the rule is not helpful to the body of Christ. Don't make standards beyond what God has written your standard. Listen. That's the error that the Pharisees made. The Pharisees said, look, if this is what God has told us we're never allowed to do, then we're going to make our own rules and we're going to surround God's commandments with a broader number of commandments and we're not going to allow those commandments 
so that we never even get close to disobeying God's commandments. That sounds pious, doesn't it? Problem is, it's not what God commanded. God's religion, God's way of living life is much wiser than that. God knows that there are times and situations where we need the freedom to practice this or practice that. That we need to understand that there's joy and fun and, and all kinds of energy that is put into the Christian life that's not restricted by a whole list of rules. That's not proper Christianity. That's not a proper understanding of a relationship to the Holy Spirit and the power of God transforming your inner thoughts. Some Christian institutions try to control their people, whether it's a church, whether it's a school, whether it's some kind of an organization, and the only way they feel they can control everybody and make sure that all this ugly stuff from the world doesn't come pouring into their organization is to make a whole bunch of rules. And the reason for making those rules is fine, but the collection of those rules as rules has now stepped beyond the boundaries of God and has created a Christian legalism. It's not God's rules. It's not God's way. It's not God's wisdom. It's not what he says. That's why the scripture says, don't go beyond what is written. If it is a sin for someone in the liberal church to take out part of God's word and say, this portion of God's word, we no longer believe. We don't believe the virgin birth of Christ. We don't believe this. We don't believe that. That's the liberal church. If it's wrong for them to take away from the word of God, it is also wrong to what? To add to the word of God, to add to the law of God. We don't do that. And listen, if you call something a sin that is not a sin, guess who sinned? Not the person you're calling a sinner. You sinned by calling something God does not call a sin, a sin. You may not understand your freedom in Christ all that well yet. Maybe the other brother does. Maybe you can learn some things from him. Maybe in some ways he is being too careless and you kind of lump everything together just because you want to be right. But don't throw out everything in his example. He may know more than you think that he understands. People, there are some religious convictions that are hurtful and you need to let go of. They're not maturity. They make a big deal out of lesser things. They distort Christian living. They are wrong Christian practice. God has accepted your brother in Christ, and that is the first reason why you must as well. Second reason. Yay, we at least got the reason number two. I wasn't even sure about that. <laughs> Second reason we must obey this command, not to judge, is in verses 4 through 9. Verses 4 through 9. This is the bulk of the section here. I'm not going to read it again. Focus on verse 4. It's basically this. Because... Each believer serves his own master. Why should I accept that other person, whether they're strong or weak? Answer, because each believer serves his own master. Now look, verse 4 introduces Paul's next reason. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? Well, now there is an excellent question. That's a question that needs to be answered by all of us. Paul's question reminds believers of their real position. What's your status in the kingdom of God, by the way? I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not the king. <laughs> you know what I am? I'm a servant. What's your status? Well, if you've figured this out, you know what you are? You're a servant also. You're a household servant, an oikaten, a household slave. That's your status in the kingdom of God. Isn't that nice? 
So as fellow slaves, it's the master of the home, the master of the house, who gets to do the judging. He gets to decide whether or not that other servant over there working in the other room, whether he's doing a good job or not. Now, you might be in your room sort of looking over at him and thinking, oh, my, that guy's going to get it. He is going to get it. The master's going to see him messing up, and he's going to get judged. But that's not for you to do. That's not your judgment call. That's going to be the master's, and might you be surprised one day if he gets commended. <laughs> and that's the point. Leave the judgment up to the master. He is the one we serve. We're his servant. Now, Paul's question in verse 4 seems to be particularly directed to the weak. Maybe it has the weak Jew in mind who would judge the believing Gentile for not observing more of the old covenant law of Moses. You know, it's the tendency of the weak to think that some conformity to a, a law helps to sustain his own spirituality and status with God. They think that those that don't keep the list, don't keep that particular rule, they just must not be as committed to God. And so the unrighteous judgment then happens. Not only do they censure the strong, they consider that the other believer's exercise of freedom will cause them eventually to stumble. Ah, oh, just keep watching them. They're playing fast and loose with the Christian life. They're on that slippery slope. They're about to fall. You just keep watching them, almost like they're wanting it to happen. However, verse 4 says, To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. It is not in reference to you that he will stand or fall. You and I are a non-issue when it comes to the judging. We're a non-issue. The only issue of importance is whether the master regards his behavior as acceptable. And then in verse 4, he adds, the strong brother will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, the image of standing or falling, Paul uses in his epistles, it usually has to do with standing as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and not falling away in unbelief to the destruction of the soul. That's usually how Paul uses this image in his writings. The context here, though, is not about losing salvation. It concerns the servant's standing in his fruitful and useful service to his master. Paul is teaching that the strong are not on slippery ground when they exercise their freedom in Christ. Christian liberty, sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, allows that strong believer to live with a joyful and a believing heart as he pursues ministry around others, yes, even sometimes around sinners. So running around and trying to summarize the way to live the Christian life being don't eat, don't touch, don't do. Guys, that is not the Christian life. What is that? That is the weak man's misconception of the Christian life. The weak man likes the rules. He understands the rules. He's comfortable around the rules. He feels he's on safe ground in his religion with the rules. He defines his Christianity by this list of rules. Please glance down to verse 17. But the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, 
You can make a whole bunch of rules about eating and drinking. He could have added on there dressing and all of these other things. Saying, if you're going to go down there and say, we're going to make a bunch of rules here till we all conform to these rules. This is the way to live the Christian life. This is how to apply the Bible. This is how to do it. You're not even understanding the Christian life properly. It's not that. Well, then what is it? Verse 17, look at it. But it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Listen, if I want to measure my spirituality, if I want to know how I'm doing with my walk with Christ, if I want to know whether I'm growing somehow in the midst of this evil world and doing better, I need to ask myself, how am I doing obeying God's actual commandments, that is, the righteous commandments of Scripture? Do I have peace in my heart? Am I overwhelmed with the presence of Christ so that he brings me peace? Do I have bubbling joy rising up inside of me because I walk with my Lord Jesus Christ? That is somebody who's walking with the Lord. That is somebody who knows the Lord. That's someone who's full of the Spirit of God. You want to measure people? You measure them with righteousness and peace and joy, not don't touch, don't eat, don't do. That's just not the Christian life. Now in verse 5, next, Paul wants to bring another illustration into this whole area where the Christians were disagreeing. We've talked about the meat-eating and the non-meat-eating. Now he's going to bring in the celebration of days. Look at verse 5. How believers can have different practices even on how they celebrate days. This is fascinating. Paul writes, one man regards one day above another. In other words, it's a special day. Another regards every day alike. Who's right? (laughs) Look what he writes next. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul, that's not much of an answer. Why didn't you just settle the issue? I want to know who's right and who's wrong. And he answers, well, they can both be right or they could both be wrong. Do you like that kind of an answer? Is that clean enough for you? (laughs) Verse 5 presents two different positions about observing a certain day. And then in verse 6, Paul gives the reason why each position is acceptable to God. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. It kind of goes on. Again, it's an area of indifference, adiaphora. Whether one eats the meat or not, no big deal. Whether one observes the day, no big deal. God accepts and approves both positions. Why? Because it's not right or wrong in and of itself. And because the motive of each person, at least in this hypothetical case, is correct. They're doing it for the Lord. Both servants, positions, though contrary to each other, though contrary to each other, are both received by the Lord because it's an area of indifference. Now, exactly what is this controversy in verses 5 and 6 over, quote, observing the day. Some of the commentators think they're talking about some pagan holiday, but why would a pagan holiday to a Roman god or a Greek god be described by Paul as being done for the Lord? I mean, that's not going to be for the Lord. So this is something that comes out of the Old Testament. It refers to Jewish festival days, all of which were actually in the Jewish calendar. The Jews were not free to skip these days. The Jews, by law, had to observe these special days, and they would have rest days along with their celebrations. And so Paul's referring to these festival days, and he probably, most of all, is referring to the most common rest day, which is their blessed Sabbath, right? The Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day of the week. 
Observing the Jewish Sabbath was something that would have caused quite a bit of controversy in the early church, lots of potential for division. The church consisted of both Jew and Gentile. It was, a, it was a source of contention, so it certainly fits the context. Many of the Jews, after becoming Christians, continued to observe the Sabbath. They did. They made the seventh day of the week a day of total rest, and they were saved, and they just did not, they did not do any work on the seventh day. They continued to do that after they were saved. They made it a total day of rest, not just a day where they might sing some songs about the Lord, but a total day of rest. Other Jews that got saved realized, oh, don't have to do that anymore, freed from the law of Moses. The Gentiles, for the most part, you know, I never did that anyway, so why would I start that now? So they chose to worship on Sunday. By the way, they didn't necessarily worship on Sunday morning. Sunday was the first day of the week. It was a, it was a work day. So what you find in Scripture is that the early Christians often met on Sunday evening. So after the work was done, they'd come, and many of the believers in Christ were actually servants or slaves because Christianity spread among the lower classes mostly. And after their work was done, they would gather together in the evenings and, and they would worship, but Sunday was their day, the day of the Lord. And it was not a complete day of rest, but it was a day where they set aside whatever portion they could of it to worship the Lord. Now, if we were to take time to turn to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, Colossians 2 and verse 16, it would help us to interpret this verse here in Romans. Because there it reads, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that combines in Colossians 2.16 this controversy about judging with the idea of eating or, and drinking, same kind of things being dealt with here in Romans 14, but also with this idea of observing Jewish special festivals and days and Sabbath as well. There, Paul explicitly refers to the Sabbath as something we don't have to obey. It's a mere shadow of the things to come. The substance has already come. That's Messiah, Christ. Observing the seventh day Sabbath is actually a step backwards into a shadow. It's not the total substance we have, which is Christ. Now, I don't have time to do a thorough study of the Sabbath, but as just a little mini reminder about the Sabbath, what was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was the sign of keeping the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, where God made himself in covenant with the nation of Israel. It was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, not with the other nations, and that's why God never gets angry with the other nations for not observing uh, a Sabbath. He gets angry at them for their violence. He gets angry at them for other forms of debauchery because they should have known those moral absolutes. But God was not in a covenant relationship with the other nations around Israel, only with Israel. And so he made it the death penalty to violate the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. But keeping the Sabbath was not a moral issue. It was a relational or covenantal issue. And that's why it was so important for Israel, but not for the other nation. Now, if you want to look up Exodus chapter 31, verses 16 and 17, that's where it explicitly states 
that keeping the seventh day Sabbath was the sign of keeping the old covenant. You can also go to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 14, or Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12, which assert the same truths. It was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Now, we have a covenant with God. It's called the new covenant. What's the sign of our keeping the new covenant today? And the answer is the Lord's Supper. That's why we're not to neglect it. We're supposed to come and participate in the communion, in the taking of the bread and the wine. That is our sign of the covenant. It's important. It's commanded. It's something we're supposed to do. But we are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. The new covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, is a better covenant. It's a new one. We're no longer under that Mosaic covenant. And so we're not required to keep the sign of the old covenant. By the way, did you know that not even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, go on to Joseph, none of them kept the sign of the Old Testament covenant either. Why not? Because it hadn't even been made during their lifetime. It came hundreds of years after their life. You go to the New Testament and you see the New Testament morally command nine of the ten commandments in the Mosaic corpus, ten commandments, nine of them are commanded of believers in the New Testament. Only one is not. Which one? You guessed it. The uh, keeping of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Why? Because it's not a moral issue. Resting is not a moral issue. And so it was not commanded of Christians. Even when the apostles and the elders met in Jerusalem in, in the, the first universal council that the church had in Acts chapter 15, and that all of these Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ and they're trying to figure out what do we do with all of them, what do we require of all of them, not even then did the church mostly still led by the Jews in Jerusalem, say, well, we better tell them to keep the Sabbath. They said, no, that's not part of the new covenant. They met on Sunday to worship, not Saturday. Now, unfortunately, what's happened, as Christianity has gotten ingrained in Western culture, they've taken the, the Sabbath on the seventh day and turned it into a commanded Sabbath on the first day, and God never gave that. God never gave the first day as a day of rest gave it a day to memorialize the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do Christians meet on the first day of the week? And the answer is because Jesus Christ was risen on which day of the week? First day, right? So it was a pattern more than a command. And this is when they regularly met on the first day of the week to remember the resurrection. I think Jesus started that pattern. And you could see that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 and other places as well. The offerings were collected on the first day of the week. So we have this we have this pattern of worshiping on the first day. That's not to turn Sunday into a new Sabbath. That would be like going back in a tricky way, back under the Mosaic Law Code again, making a Christian form of legalism. And we don't want that either. But Paul's main point in verse 5 is that the man who is weak in faith regards one day above the other days. Notice. He observes the day because he says this day is more important. Why does he say that? Because to some degree, his faith is still under the knowledge of the old covenant. It's still bound by that old rule. However, other brothers are stronger in faith, and they do not observe the Sabbath day. They regard every day alike. Every day to them is a day to live for the Lord. By the way, isn't that a great motto? Do you have that on your calendar and your little electronic thing you get up you know today is this is the day that the Lord has made we'll rejoice and be glad in it or something every single day is set apart as a servant of Jesus Christ 
that you wake up each day and you say, I don't know how many more days I have left to live in this world, but every day is important for Christ. I want to live every day for him. It's all set apart for him. It's all sanctified. It's all holy. It's all special. There is no more weekly Sabbath observance. There is no monthly Sabbath observance. There is no yearly festival. There's none of that in the New Testament, Christian. No one day is any more important than any other day. That's Christian teaching. They are all set apart for the Lord. Now, are both of these positions that Christians take acceptable to God? Again, just like with the food, the answer is yes. Why? Because the one who observes the Sabbath is doing it for who? For God, right? I'm setting this day aside for you. Okay, if that's how your conscience is made, if that's what you're wanting to do, then do it. And don't violate it. And don't steal it back from the Lord. Because you dedicated it to Him. Give it to Him and God will be well pleased with your offering of that day. Do you see that? It's a motive. It's His motive. It's what He was doing. And then verse 5 his settling of the issue is so simple. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Mind in this context means his conscience. It is a personal decision. It is a decision of conscience. Don't get all over your brother for coming up with a different decision. Support him in what he's done. This is not a matter of observance or non-observance, but of intent and purpose and conscience. I want to say to you, as we're kind of wrapping up, and we were saying, how would we begin to practice this? Do you know that there is, are no commanded holidays of a Christian in the New Testament time at all? Nowadays, if you don't celebrate Christmas and you don't celebrate Easter or Good Friday, some people would wonder whether or not you're even a Christian or not. Isn't that right? But this whole idea of a Christian calendar is something that came to us throughout church history. And church history, as interesting as it is, is not an authority over the church. Only the Word of God is the authority of the church. Would you agree? We believe in the sole authority of the Word of God. And so the celebration of these days are acceptable, but they are not what? Commanded. They are not forbidden. Some people say, well, we should have nothing to do with Christmas because, and we should have nothing to do with Easter because of this or that. And they're, again, they're taking a rule, and they're attaching a wrong motive to their brother's heart, and they're, now they're forbidding practicing something that God has not forbidden and that some people benefit from. But we are to hold our faith with our own conviction before God and be happy with that. Paul even mentions that down in verse 22. And so, uh, should you celebrate these special days or not? Well, if you see someone coloring Easter eggs at Easter time and you think, aha, aha, they're really secretly worshiping the goddess Esther of fertility, you are, you are really judging your sister or your brother in that matter. Because there is, there's very little chance that that's what's going on in her mind when she's just expressing an artistic thing and maybe in some way she's tying that artistry on an eggshell to her understanding of the glories of Christ. If you're judging your brother for hanging up stockings for Santa because you could rearrange the letters in Santa's name and come up with Satan and you think that's what he's literally doing... What you're doing in your mind is you're judging your brother in a sinful way and assigning a motive into his heart that he doesn't have in his heart at all. Is he allowed to do that? Of course he's allowed to do that. Should he do that? I don't know. It depends on why he's doing it, right? 
There are a lot of things in celebration of days Christians are allowed to do and enjoy and have fun. Let me tell you a little story. When our kids were very young, I saw them opening the Christmas packages a little bit too fast, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Ripping them open and not really thinking about this special moment is Christmas Day, the Lord our Savior's been born, and they're all into the material. So I says to myself, this is the last Christmas we're going to have like this. I want Christmas Day to be focused on the Lord, and we're going to maybe open one or two packages, but then we're going to spend time thinking about Christ. And we'll hang on to those packages, and we'll teach our kids delayed gratification, and we'll open them seven days later on New Year's Day. Of course, the kids hated that. And we just did this, and we practiced this as a family. Did we think other people should follow our example? Not necessarily. It was just something that we wanted to do to teach a lesson to our children. And um, did, it, did it keep them from being materialistic? Not necessarily. Are they going to do that with their own families? I doubt it very much. But was it something that I was free to do if my application was right? And the answer was yes. I was just trying to keep Christ the focus of our celebrations around that time. You see the difference? It's just something you, you make up in your mind and you say, this is something I'm going to do and I'm dedicating it to the Lord. It's not a law. It's not required of anyone else. I'm certainly not going to use it to judge whether or not you're celebrating the holidays well or anything else like that. Now, you can also take this and apply this to what people do on Sunday. Should they work on a Sunday or not work on a Sunday? That depends. Are, are, you, are you needing to set aside more time for the Lord? You might be going and going and going seven days a week. And by the way, even though a Sabbath day is not commanded of you, it's a very good idea, a wisdom principle, to take some time out to rest one day in seven. That was the pattern that the Lord set from creation. And though it's not commanded there, it is, it is a, a wise application of, hey, take a little rest. Take a little load off. Your body needs some rest. And so there is some wisdom in that. But take it as a principle of Scripture rather than as a command of Scripture, and you see, again, where we have freedom and how to judge or not judge. So in many of these things, there are many different ways Christians practice differently, and we just need to make sure that we're not judging the spirituality or the rightness or wrongness of all of these different things. Um, uh, So just keep this in mind and keep in mind the many applications that flow from Romans 14 and uh, ask God to help teach our heart to be accepting and kind. God has accepted the weak brother. God has accepted the strong brother. We are not servants uh, to each other. We are servants to Christ. In the end, it's Christ. We're going to get into this next week. It's Christ who's going to evaluate our lives. The thing that I'm concerned about in my life right now and that you should be concerned about in your life right now is not what's going to happen when Joe or Henrika stands before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. (laughs) That should not be your concern. (laughs) What should be your concern is what is Jesus going to say to you when you stand there? And that's what concerns me. I want to to live my life with a clear conscience, and I want to take care of Tom and Tom's motives and what Tom is doing, and that's what you should be doing with your own life as well. Does that make sense? God add blessing to the preaching of his word. Father, as we come to sing a final song and worship you, Bless us with the spirit of graciousness and understanding that we are your servants. We are not our own. And that you will decide how well our service has been. Um, Keep us free from the sin of judging. Help us to warmly receive and accept one another. We do ask it in Christ's mighty name. Amen.